Subtitle is made possible in part by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, exploring the human endeavor. Hub and Spoke Audio Collective I went to see this guy recently. He's the one singing the song. He wrote it too. His name is Alcy Adams. He lives about halfway between New Orleans and the Gulf of Mexico. The last big hurricane to hit Louisiana was Ida in August 2021. It destroyed Alcy's trailer. A tree fell on the living room kitchen area and just pushed everything to the back. And that's what we're looking at right now. Yeah. And then when that happened, the whole back wall up to here went also. So what you see on the ground there, that's the back wall of the trailer. The trailer just sits there on the ground, all twisted up, with furniture spilling out, like it's been attacked by a pack of wild animals. Next to it now, there's a new trailer, Elsie's temporary home provided by FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. He takes us inside. The people I'm with, a linguist and a friend who runs a climate change tech company, they're impressed. FEMA trailers aren't usually so fancy. Oh, man. This is nice. This is bad. Yeah. I, I didn't know what to expect. <laughs> so you, you grew up right here. Right this street. When I was born, we were living with my grandparents on the next street. The older generation spoke French. Elsie says that was his first language, though he and his siblings among themselves flipped to English. My grandma learned English, and uh, the only English word I ever heard her say was yeah. Everything else, speaking French. She understood us talking English. She chose not to speak English. So I guess I, I got some of her in me, <laughs> a bit of a rebel. As a kid growing up in Bayou country, Elsie says, there were two things that stood out. Speaking French in addition to English and living through storms. He had a great aunt who loved to tell him stories about storms from before he was born, from her childhood. The first big one Elsie remembers was in 1965, Hurricane Betsy. Betsy, we survived. My grandma's house just up there, up the road. Uh, Mom and I put us to bed. My daddy was on the boat. He couldn't come home, so we... We lived just almost across the street. And uh, so mom put us to bed. And then I heard my grandma was burning up the rosary. And so I said, Mom, the bed's moving. No, 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 you're dreaming. Go back to sleep. And my uncle, mama's brother, was living across the street. And he says, hey, the house is moving up and down. I told y'all. Y'all didn't believe me. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about getting a, a sash or a vest or something, I survived Betsy, Katrina, Ida, yeah, all the monsters that I survived. Now though, after Ida, Elsie doesn't know what's next for him. He comes from a long line of people who've been compelled for one reason or another to move. From poverty, from the threat of violence, from hurricanes. It's the story of his ancestry so is the French language. Elsie knows that whenever a French speaker moves away from this part of Louisiana, 
whenever their house floods out or the roof blows off and they're made homeless, he knows that each time someone moves away, it's another micro-blow to the survival of French here. Until a hundred years ago, my family spoke French. That's all we knew. English was forced on us about a hundred years ago. It's a beautiful language. I just, I just love it. It's, I love listening to and my, my, my great aunt, the one that told me stories about the storm. It's old French. She didn't learn any English growing up. And it was beautiful. And I love listening to that. From Quiet Juice and the Linguistic Society of America, it's subtitled, Stories About Languages and the People Who Speak Them. In this episode, will climate change kill French in Louisiana? My name is Natalie Dyko, and I am a professor at Tulane University in New Orleans. A linguistics professor. I first met Natalie two years ago when I was reporting an episode about the English spoken in New Orleans, how it was changing, and how Hurricane Katrina had accelerated that. Sometime later, I found out, maybe Natalie told me, I found out that for years, in fact, since grad school at Tulane, she'd been studying what was happening with the French language in the part of Louisiana where French is most spoken, the lower bayou country near the Gulf Coast. I'd been to France as a teenager. I did an exchange program in high school, and I knew that there were French speakers in Louisiana, and I just wanted to hear their French. And that was my motivation for coming to Louisiana, was to hear the French. Which she did. She heard people who could speak French fluently, as well as people who could say nothing more than laissez les bon temps rouler, and of course, a lot of people in between. Natalie knew that fewer people were speaking French, but she didn't know why, or for that matter, how much the language meant to them. Then Katrina came. Hundreds of thousands of people lost their homes. Some ended up in camps that were scattered across a few southern states. Natalie visited some of those camps. She was working for Save the Children at the time. Every now and again, we'd come across these French speakers, and they would be so excited to meet somebody who spoke French, and they would talk about how they missed the French, and, and, and so on and so forth. People talking about constantly moving, about the language dying, and about the land eroding. And I was saying, I was saying, you know, I get the impression that what matters to people, you know, more than anything is this attachment to this land. After that, she began visiting people living in Bayou Country, interviewing them. Okay, Here, a man tells Natalie a story from when he was in the army. He was stationed in California, he says, and an officer, a captain, was trying to get him to break his habit of looking down while he was walking. He asks the captain, where are you from? The captain says, Texas. So he tells him, come with me to my house in Louisiana and look up while you walk. You won't live long. If you don't look down, the snakes will... And he leaves that thought, what the snakes will do. He leaves it hanging. After that, he says, no one at the army base tried to get him to look up. After that, they left me alone. Natalie takes me to see a woman called Nasia who she's been visiting for years, a woman in her late 80s, mother of 15 children. Nasia lives in a village where nearly all of the houses were damaged by Hurricane Ida. 
Ayo, allez. En bas, okay. en bas dans, le, dans la cour. Dans la cour, ouais. Et arrête si on va si on va garder le jardin. We don't linger here. Neja is frail and tired, but she enjoys chatting in French. She only speaks French. And she clearly enjoys Natalie's company. It's the same everywhere we go. People know Natalie, and they open up to her. I like to think that it's because I'm charming and friendly. But I think Louisiana is just that accepting. And I think there was in large part as well, because I was studying French... People are proud of their language, justifiably so. And for years and years, they were told their language was worthless and that they shouldn't speak it. And they would have all these stories about, you know, priest whoever who came down here and didn't even speak French, but told them they didn't really speak French. As ridiculous as that is, it is true that Louisiana French isn't standard French. This version of the language has a few of its own words and some grammatical quirks. It sounds different, it's spelt differently too at times. But is it actually incomprehensible to people in France, I asked Natalie. She tells me the story of one of the old-timers she interviewed in the bio, a guy who told her about when he fought in World War II and ended up in France. And the guy's like, it's, this is great, I'm going to be able to talk to people. And his friends all say, ah, they won't understand you. But he, he starts to hit on some waitress that, that they had at lunch or whatever. And he's not the only American soldier there who likes the look of this waitress. His commanding officer does too. The CO doesn't speak any French, so he gets our guy from Louisiana to arrange a date with the waitress at seven that evening. Which our guy does, but he fixes it for himself. An hour earlier, at seven o'clock, his non-French-speaking CO finds himself outmaneuvered and stood up. Here they are liberating France and making dates with the locals because they can speak. But yeah, he was excited, right, to go to France. And there were, there, you get all these stories of validation. Like everybody told me my language was, was not really French, but here I am in France and it turns out it is, right? What did I tell you? I asked Natalie to tell me a bit about the history of French in Louisiana, which she did, but she wasn't happy with the way she described it. She thought she was oversimplifying things. I thought it sounded crazily complicated. So here's a bit of me and a bit of Natalie. The first French speakers to arrive in what's now Louisiana were colonialists from France, not well-off people. They didn't speak fancy French. After a time, they began importing enslaved Africans to the area. That was the second group of French speakers. They were forced to speak the language, and they changed it up, improvised with it. That's usually labeled Creole. Then, in the 18th century, came some other French speakers who'd been driven out of Canada's maritime provinces, the Acadians, or les Acadiens. And so Acadien becomes Acadien. And then you just drop the A and you get Cajun, and that becomes Cajun in English. Many Cajuns settled alongside bayous, slow-moving bodies of water that make up part of the Mississippi Delta. The word bayou comes from Cajun French, and possibly before that from a Choctaw word, meaning small stream. The final way for French speakers to arrive were from France again in the 19th century. Since then, all these French speakers with their particular linguistic varieties have mixed. So to linguists like Natalie, those varieties don't exist anymore, at least not in isolation. The definitions and the boundaries between them, they've broken down. 
People call their language by the name they give themselves. People will call it Cajun French, the people will call it Creole if they identify themselves as Creole, and vice versa, right? And so they will speak Creole but call it Cajun French if they identify as Cajun, and it's really complicated. See what I mean? There was one more group of French speakers, Native Americans. The history is a bit murky, but we do know that in the early 1700s, several local tribes formed protective alliances with the colonial French. They adopted the French language, and over time, they lost their own languages. Their descendants, some of them, still speak French, especially those who live in the far south, closer to the ocean, to the floods, and to the storms. That's where we went next. If you're a regular listener, you'll already know that we ask you to help spread the word by rating and reviewing Subtitle. If you've done that, thank you. If not, please consider it. Head to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and give us the old five stars. Or no stars if you like. That can be fun. Also fun is reading our newsletter. Yes, it comes out every two weeks. We start each edition by saying hello in a different language, and then we talk about a couple of language-related items in the news, and we give you a sneak preview of what's coming up in the podcast. If that sounds like it would add a bit of je ne sais quoi to your inbox, go ahead and sign up at subtitlepod.com slash newsletter. That's subtitlepod.com slash newsletter. On one of the days I was in Louisiana, the weather was bad. We were supposed to drive from New Orleans to the bio country, but we nixed that plan. Instead, I walked a few blocks to the banks of the Mississippi. I wanted to test my recording gear to see how it held up in driving wind and rain. If my microphone could have talked right then, it would have said, I'm with stupid. Okay, it's getting a little too windy here. Oh, it's crazy now. I think I want to be indoors. Things got worse. Back in my hotel room, I switched on the TV. Widespread winds between 45 and 50 miles an hour. Again, widespread, so not isolated to one location, but on a much larger scale, which goes to say that even if you get some... A tornado warning has been issued for our area. That, just shows you that alert interrupted the Weather Channel commentary every few minutes. That looked like a yeah. proper tornado. Yeah, right it was about a wedge. Yeah, so, uh, oh man. So again, uh, tracking the uh, tornado warning, uh, very serious situation here uh, in New Orleans. Again, uh, right along. Uh, a tornado warning has been issued for our area. The, uh, eastern side of Orleans Parish. It turned out to be New Orleans' strongest tornado on record, with winds of up to 160 miles per hour. It touched down and stayed on the ground for more than 11 miles, killing one person and plowing through dozens of homes, homes many of them that have been rebuilt after Hurricane Katrina. There's brilliant sunshine the next day. We drive south to Bayou Country. There's water everywhere in Louisiana, but the further south you go, the more of it there is. 
pretty much every house here is built on pilings. We drive across a causeway to an island, the Ile de Jean Charles. We pass one abandoned dwelling after another, collapsed walls, caved in roofs, sometimes just piles of debris. Some of the damage looks years old. A lot of it, though, looks new, like from Hurricane Ida. A few of the houses are being fixed up a bit. Most aren't. We stop near the end of the road, intrigued at a sign outside a house. It says, Ile de Jean Charles is not dead. Climate change sucks. We knock on the door of the trailer next to the house. There's three of us, Natalie, me, and Julia Kumari Drapkin, my friend who runs the climate change tech company. A guy in a wheelchair comes out. He's happy his sign has made a stop. You want a place to sit? Look, they got oh, no, a chair okay. right here. I'm good. Oh. I'm good. It's fine. We've, we've been in the car for two hours. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so what, what is y'all up to? My okay. name's Patrick. And what's your name, sir? My name is Chris. Chris, yes. nice to meet you. What's your phone? Oh, Brunet. How do you spell Brunet? B-R-U-N-E-T. Oh, okay. Do you speak French? Oui, je parle français. Les deux langues. Chris and Natalie chat about his linguistic upbringing. He spoke French at home, English at school. His grandmother only spoke French. His parents were bilingual. Most everyone on the island was a member of the Biloxi Chitamacha Choctaw tribe. What happened here with the house? A storm hit it. <laughs> a cat four, and it's still standing. I've always lived on the island my whole life. I never lived no no other place. And so um, in the 16 years since I moved back in, in this house, Hurricane Ida is the first storm to put damage to the house. You know, I live in a hurricane-prone area. I was surrounded by storm damage, but I never had storm damage. So it's just Ida because of her wind and rain and the power that she had. Um, she She did some damage to it, you know. But it's still standing, and it's repairable, you know. That's good, because there's so many of the ones that we've seen are beyond that. Oh, yeah, well, just like my aunt's house next door, my mom's sister. The house was just right there vacant, but the family was still coming down. Check on it. It's gone now. Also likely to be gone soon is this entire island. In the past 65 years, Ile de Jean Charles has shrunk from 22,000 acres to just 320. Even by the standards of South Louisiana, that's rapid. And it's not just the storms that are doing this. It's a bunch of things. Rising sea levels, the rerouting of the Mississippi River, some of it natural, some engineered, canal construction, land erosion, some of that caused by oil and gas extraction. Also, the levee system, which is a lifesaver if you live within it, potentially catastrophic if you're on the wrong side of it. It's all these things and more. And it's why Chris, and almost everyone else on the island, is leaving. How far will you move? 35 miles in. I'm part of that relocation plan that the state uh, received that $48 million for. That money came from the feds, and it is the first time the federal government has planned a mass relocation based on climate change. The tribal members are moving to a place together that's protected by levees, but where virtually no one else speaks French. At times when we speak, Chris is optimistic about French. 
but other times less so. And, and I guess, you know, for your question, my dear, well, if people wind up moving away, uh, does the, you know, you know, does the French language get set aside? Yeah, you know, it So it many people, he says, French, French speakers, really left the island long ago when the land became impossible to farm. The water had become salty from the ocean. By the time Chris was born, the ash trees had disappeared. But even so, in his childhood, he recalls the land was bountiful. The fruit trees, oranges, bananas, apples, you know, cantaloupe, watermelon, pecans, blackberries, persimmons, you know. You get the feeling that Chris may be one of the last people to leave the island before it totally vanishes. He's keeping his place, turning it into his camp, he says. My friend Julia of the Climate Change Company, she asks him to define the word home. Over here. What does that mean? Over here where I belong. What does that mean? (laughs) Where there's that sense of belonging. That's where I come from. It is just over here. You know, You're going to miss it, huh, when you go? Well, I tell them myself that, that you know, I know y'all building me a house, but it's going to be a long time before it's home. Because, you know what I mean, we've been over here for generations. This is the only place I've ever known that's home. And then with being Native Americans, you know, at a time whenever the world finished with you, you go back home, you have a sense of belonging. I know probably that's what, uh, well, no, not probably. I know I, I made a decision to be part of the resettlement, but I've been taking it one step at a time. I'm not confused. I'm not filled with anxieties, but it, it, it's just to say that I'm walking over there real slow. And I'm in no rush to get there. <laughs> After we say goodbye to Chris, I kept wondering about their move from the island and whether French will survive among the older tribal members. Most of them will be sticking together, moving to the same new place. But it isn't the same as life on the island, where they've been relatively isolated. In their new home, they'll be surrounded by English speakers. Can you, as a group, move the place where you live, I asked Natalie, and still keep the language intact? She's not sure. If you're mapping your community onto a landscape and you're mapping it onto your language in the same way, then you could theoretically move the language and thereby move the place. Not perfectly, but, you know, to a large degree and still be psychologically okay, right? Because it's still the place, even if it's in a new space. But if you lose both, then what have you got? If you've mapped your community onto both a physical space and this linguistic space and now both are gone, like, where, what are you anchored to anymore? Anchored is an apt metaphor for this watery part of the world. No place is anchored here anymore, certainly not the French language. Maybe all that's anchored are the stories that people tell their children and grandchildren of moving every generation or two up the bayou, away from the ocean, leaving their land behind, leaving previous generations too. One time, Natalie asked the guy with a boat to take her to where everyone from his town used to live. He took her down the bayou about 10 miles. And when we stop the boat and I hear from behind me, I don't know about this, Natalie. And then I turn around and he's got horse flies 
all over him and or horseflies deer flies rather and then at that instant they start biting me and it's just this all you can hear we get out the boat anyway for some reason and i've got the camera with me because i'm going to videotape this and immediately the camera's on the ground <laughs> we're doing this and it's like we're getting back in the boat this is a waste of time it was it's miserable right like it's just uninhabitable and the reason they left is because it was uninhabitable but they're abandoning you know long-standing settlements and they've got a cemetery they've abandoned right like their ancestors are in the ground there they're literally abandoning their ancestors there. That particular town, it's called Quanto Shen, in the newer part of town where people move to, there's now an effort to start a French language immersion program at the elementary school. But last year, the school closed after years of declining enrollment. First reopening the school and then introducing a French program. It seems like a long shot. The whole thing seems like a long shot the survival of French here as people move away. It's not like the previous migrations when people move from one rural community to another. Now they're moving to towns and cities further away. I asked Natalie what she thinks will happen. If I had to predict, I would suggest that people are not gonna maintain French, but. Natalie often comes up with an idea, then says but, and follows it with a contrasting idea. But here, after she says that but, she doesn't offer a contrasting prediction for French. Instead, she gets really animated. You can't predict some things when it comes to language and the future, she says. Really, I say? Really, she says. People have been predicting the death of Louisiana French for generations, and it just won't die, which, you know, is interesting. You can't predict anything with language. This is the thing, right? You cannot predict what people are going to do. They're worse than predicting the weather. They always do something you don't expect. If you'd like to know more about this group of French speakers, Natalie Dyko has written a wonderful book about them. It's called French on Shifting Ground, Cultural and Coastal Erosion in South Louisiana. Many, many thanks to Natalie. Thanks also to Chucky Verdun and Alex Kolker, both of whom filled in some huge gaps in my knowledge. And special thanks to my friend, Julia Kumari Drapkin, who asked all of the smart questions in our interviews and took a bunch of fabulous photos, which you can see in the published transcript to this episode. There's a link in the show notes. Julia runs IC Change, which is a climate change tech company that invites local communities to come up with solutions to climate-based issues that are in their own backyard. Tina Toby is our sound designer. Alison Shaw manages our newsletter and social media. Subtitle is a member of the Hub and Spoke Audio Collective, where a group of podcasters all interested in telling stories that would otherwise slip by unnoticed. Like Open Source, the world's first ever podcast. It's a show about the arts, ideas, and politics. The latest episode is about that forgotten war, the war in Yemen and American arms sales. Check out Open Source and all of the Hub and Spoke podcasts at hubspokeaudio.org. That's it for this time. Thanks for listening. See you in a couple of weeks. Subtitle is made possible in part by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Exploring the human endeavor. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.